0: And welcome to another episode of G two twenty Radio. This is Ricky Gans along with Mike Miller, and and I think I think this is episode five hundred and two. Is it five hundred and two or are we at five hundred? I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we did. That's a your episode, job, not mine. I, I know we did. We did five hundred episodes. this celebration of reaching this milestone. And now I'm like lost in what number we're on. <laughs> so uh, usually I have a little thing it's down at the bottom. It's 502. Well, there we are, 502 episodes here on G220 Radio. We are excited uh, to be here on the program tonight. And we're going to be talking about the Old Testament canon. Uh, really looking forward to this. The Old Testament canon, the Apocrypha. Uh, if you've got questions, stick around and Put those in the chat room. You can either do that on YouTube if you're watching there or on Facebook if you're watching there. Throw them in the chat room. We will see them. Let me pull that chat up. Uh, We'll see them if you have any questions there, and uh, we will uh, try to uh, get them out uh, towards the end of the program. But put them up there, and we'll see them, like I said, and we'll be able to scroll back through them. Put little question marks at the beginning and then at the end so this way we know it's a question that you have uh, for the program here tonight and our guest but before we get to our guest, uh, Mike, brother,
1: how you been? Doing pretty good. Excited about this topic. This is not as familiar with maybe Old Testament, Old Testament, kinicity. I mean, I've studied it, but I'm excited about just to rethink about these ideas again, and especially the importance being that this is the Reformation month, and we're going to mm-hmm. be talking a little bit about the Apocrypha, which plays right into some of the things happening with the Reformation and the Re-Reformation. So it'll be some exciting show. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, me as well. Uh, I am likewise looking forward to this program tonight Um, because I I was trying to think, and I know we've had on professors before, we've had on individuals that talked about scriptures, but as as an Old Testament, I, I can't remember us doing a show. In the 500 and... Now, two shows. Now, this one we are having that uh, topic come up. But I can't remember us doing that, especially the Apocrypha. I know we have not. And so that's why I thought this would be a good conversation to have. And we have uh, Steve Christie on. And Steve Christie was uh, raised Roman Catholic. He served as a treasurer of the Knights of the Altar of his former parish. And he graduated from a Catholic elementary school and high school and college where he converted to Protestant to, be, to being a Protestant in August of 2004. And so he's wrote a couple books. He the One of the books is, Why Are the Protestant Bibles Smaller? Let me throw this up here on the screen. Um, share that there. Why Protestant Bibles are Smaller, A Defense of the Protestant Old Testament Canon. And uh, you can go over there to Amazon and pick that up, either Kindle or paperback. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, but he wrote that book. and And I became familiar with Steve because he spoke at my church. Uh, now, I wasn't a member of this church at the time. Uh, we were in the process of looking for the church or for a church. And that week that he was coming to speak, uh, Pastor Buck was telling me, hey, come in, and listen. But we had already had plans to go uh, visit another friend's church. And so I wasn't able to be there, uh, although I did listen to that uh, via the YouTube for our church. And so I'm excited now because through my pastor, I connected with uh, Steve online. And here he is, Steve Christie. And he is... Uh, with us tonight to talk about his book and to talk about Old Testament canon. Steve, welcome to G220 Radio.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on, Ricky and Mike. It's a pleasure and the honor is all mine. Like you said, it's an exciting topic. It's a topic that a lot of people aren't really familiar with or how to address. And, and um, this is just uh, one of the things that I have a passion for, so I'm ready to get into it.
0: Yeah. Well, um, what we want to do is we usually when we have a guest on that is new to G220 radio, maybe new to our audience, uh, maybe they haven't seen you, although you've, you've kind of been around. I know recently you just was on uh, Dr. Michael Brown's show not too long ago, and you had debated Trent Horn and some other. Uh, and uh, so you've been around, you've been interviewed a few times on some other programs. And so maybe some people are familiar with you. Uh, but for those that aren't, uh, why don't you go ahead and share with us a little bit about yourself? I know I gave a little introduction there of you, but kind of elaborate a little bit more on that. Tell us how you came to know the Lord and then how you became fascinated with, and I think it will play into it, but how you became fascinated with how the Protestant Bible is smaller than the Catholic Bible.
2: Sure. As you had mentioned, I was raised in a very devout, a very loving Catholic uh, background. I, had a wonderful experience. So my conversion didn't have anything to do with any negative experiences or lack of understanding. It was uh, simply a theological um, conversion. And actually when I was um, the treasurer of the altar boys, as you had mentioned, I noticed that we had two different Bibles in our home. One of them was my great-grandmother's, Um, Catholic new uh, Catholic version of the Bible that I still have today and the other one was a Gideon or a Protestant Bible and as you know um, there are differences between the two Bibles and when I was leafing through them I noticed that the uh, two different Bibles um, some books were missing in my Protestant Bible that were in my Catholic Bible and I didn't really think too much about this but then fast-forward 20 years when I had converted towards the end of my Catholic college education When i had first really truly heard the gospel out of the pages of scripture themselves that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone uh, by christ alone based on the scriptures alone which is what the reformation was based on and this is taken right out of the bible such as in uh, second corinthians chapter 5 where it says he meaning god made christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so we might uh, become the righteousness of god in him that's known as a great exchange um And when it says that in uh, Romans chapter four, when it says that Abraham believed God knew and his righteousness was credited to him by faith, this is known as imputation uh, rather than infusion. The way I was taught as a Catholic where grace is infused through the sacraments, which you have to perform or do a particular type of work uh, to cooperate with your salvation, which is something scripture clearly doesn't teach. Um, And then a, a few years after I... Um, had converted to being a Protestant, um, I got interested in the different books that that are in the two different Bibles. And I came across a video by Catholic Answers that I think you mentioned before. And I noticed that in the video it said that the Pharisees had the same books in them that Protestants did. And I remember the Apostle Paul from the books of Acts was a Pharisee, and he specifically said in his letter to the Roman Church that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And the, the word is used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint to refer to the Old Testament books. It's, it's used to describe Habakkuk and uh, Haggai and Zechariah and, and several others. And it says that they were entrusted with these books. Well, just as the the apostles were entrusted with the gospel and needed to know what they were, likewise, the Jews needed to be uh, familiar and knew what the Old Testament canon was and those scriptures were to be entrusted with them as well. Um, and then, like I says, the, Jesus himself actually affirmed that the Pharisees, which we have the most information on was in their canon historically. Um, he said that the Pharisees, had these books, he says, that they have Moses and the prophets, The term Moses and the prophets is a term to describe um, the Old Testament canon. And the word for have in Greek means to have possession of. Um, and from there, I started putting the pieces together, and I realized that the, the canon of the Pharisees, which is the same as Protestants today, was the Old Testament canon that Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and the, and the um, New Testament disciples and the early church embraced.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's very important for us to to grasp that to understand that because it, we we have a foundation by which we are walking out our faith and if we don't have a set understanding of what those scriptures are, then we can go off into all kinds of things uh, I mean, there are, there's books. I, I've had many conversations with individuals. Uh, I was just doing some video editing uh, earlier. I had a conversation just, just a week ago at Cleveland State University with a young Muslim girl who I started to talk to her about the Bible. And she said, oh, the Bible's corrupted. It's been corrupted by Rome. And, you know, and I was trying to explain to her, that's not how it works. The, the Jews had the scripture before Rome, before there was a council of Nicaea, before any other councils to, to try to determine which were the, 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 the genuine books of scripture. Uh, the Jews had that. And we even had a Septuagint at the time of Christ, which was this Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So they already had a reference but we're we're trying to understand this, and and just recently I, I'm I'm actually still teaching on Roman Catholicism at Brunswick, and we were teaching before that on the Jews, Judaism, and how they have a, a lesser number than 39, but there's a combined book. So you take First and Second Chronicles and put them together. First and Second Samuel put them together. This is why we don't have the they don't have the number 39, but they still have the same books. So why don't you go ahead and and, and uh, you wrote a book on this. You've, you've done a lot of study in this. Help us understand how we get. Yes, there you go. Why Protestant Bibles are smaller. Um, help us understand that. And for the audience, because this is a question that comes up. How do we know that these Old Testament scriptures are the word of God? How did they come? How did they come to compile them? Why not the book of Enoch? Why not some of these other books? Why not the Apocrypha? Um, and so, I mean, we've got about 45 minutes, just kind of, uh, and we'll interject as we go, but kind of just teach us from, uh, from that, uh, your understanding and your, your, your learning on this, uh, the books that we have that we can trust this Old Testament canon is what they had during the time of Christ and, and, and even before that
2: right well as i had mentioned in my opening statement against my debate against trent horn last year i had cited the council of trent which is an ecumenical or universal council uh, of the catholic church which uh, formally and officially defined for all time what their old testament and new testament were and i also quoted the uh, catechism of the catholic church and both of them said that the that the canon the collection of inspired books were passed down from Jesus and the apostles to the early church all the way down to the Council of Trent. Now, as Protestants, we don't believe this includes the deuteral canon or what we call apocryphal books. But what they're saying is that this canon was known and set as early as the time of Jesus, and, and we can even argue even before that. And what contemporary Catholic apologists like Gary and Trent Horn, and others try to say is that the... Old Testament canon developed well into the church age. And part of the reason that they say that is if you take a look at all of the canonical lists, you know, which there's not a whole lot in the early church, none of them have the exact same uh, books that are in Catholic Old Testaments today. And that's one thing that I um, had always wondered that if Jesus and the apostles had handed down these deuterocanonical books to the church, why don't these early lists Include them until at the very earliest, the end of the f- fourth century. What you would expect to see if these books were in there um, were not just one, but several um, canonical lists saying these are the books of the Old Testament, but you don't even find one until almost the fifth century. But you find several that are either identical or nearly identical to the Protestant Old Testament. For example, like in the fourth century, Raphinus, you know, mentioned has lists them this way. Uh, there's a writer called, and I'm going to probably mispronounce it, um, Caius in the fourth century. It's identical to the Protestant Old Testament canon. Melito, who's in the second century, um, uh, lists all of them except for, um, I believe, H- Esther, and there's there's reasons for that. Origin is identical, and then there's another one called Bri- uh list, and it's Question of whether or not it's a Jewish um, um, order of books or a Christian order of books, but when you look at the order of books, um, it's not in a Jewish order, which means this would have been a Christian list, and the dating is anywhere between the second and fourth century. But, like I said, in order for um, the Jews and then the early church uh, to know what the canon is, Jesus held the Jews accountable to um, what those books were, because he says, have you not read? He couldn't hold them accountable to knowing what the Old Testament scriptures were um, if there wasn't a set canon by then. And even the um, New American Bible, not to be confused with the New American Standard Bible, which is a Protestant translation, but the New American Bible, which was basically the Catholic Bible um, in in the 1970s, in a book called syrick which is sometimes referred to as ecclesiasticus not to be confused with ecclesiastes um, but it's a book that's one of those apocryphal books that are in catholic old testaments it actually gives a list of a threefold division that is is the same that is in protestant old testaments today now they don't list every single book but what's interesting is in the footnotes of um this forward to the book of syrick and says so it's the same books that are in Protestant Old Testaments today. And this um, this uh, Book of Sirach was written around 180 BC, so so a couple hundred years before the time of Christ. And it lists uh, 17 out of these 22 books, beginning with the Genesis and ending with Second Chronicles. And that's the reason why, uh, when you look at a Hebrew um, Bible today, and, and they list it into these four three divisions of the law, the prophets, and the writings, it begins with Genesis, and it ends with 2 Chronicles. And we may get to this uh, a little bit later, but if you read the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says, you are just like your um, ancestors, your forefathers, and because if, if you had lived in the time that they lived, um, you would have murdered the prophets too. And he says, from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Abel, as we know, is mentioned at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And uh, the last book of the Hebrew Bible canonically is 2 Chronicles. Now, chronologically, that would be Nehemiah, and we know that. But, but canonically is Second Chronicles. And I always found it interesting that he finishes uh, with um, Zechariah. And that's because Jesus is drawing on a set canon. It's not a canon that he had just established at that time, but a canon that had been around for some time, which is how we know that the canon was not developed later by the Jews around 8200, but was set at least uh, 400 years before that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's very important because, uh, as you said, if there was no scripture for them to draw off of, Christ is saying, have you not read? We see this multiple times in the Word. We see Paul as he writes to Timothy here, and he says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and and this is around 64 AD or so, so you're talking New Testament is being written, but he refers to these sacred writings, and he says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be, be complete, equipped for every good work. And so Paul is, is is writing this to Timothy and he's reminding him, hey, these sacred writings that you grew, you grew up, your, your mother, uh, your grandmother was teaching you these, these sacred writings. Um, we even see Jesus on the road to uh, Emmaus and he's he's walking with the disciples and saying all of these uh, writings were about me. Paul is going into the synagogues, reasoning with people daily to to speak to them about Christ being the Messiah from the scriptures. And there was no New Testament when he's doing this. He's he's going to the Old Testament. So there there had to be an established gr- uh, group of writings for them to pull from.
2: Right, e- exactly. Um, and I don't know if you want to get into... Um... The what's known as a rabbinic name conflation that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 23, um, because this is something that's really significant because he refers to. um, The Zechariah as a son of Berechiah, which is mentioned in the book of Zechariah, as as opposed to the son of Jehoiada that's mentioned in second Chronicles, and this is something that when we talk with our Catholic and Orthodox friends. They'll say, say, well, that proves that he's not talking about the canon and because he's referring to um, uh, the son of Berechiah. But in reality, he's actually conflating both of them. So is that something you know that you want to address at this time? Or?
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. So that would be something that I'll be learning. So, yeah, go ahead and, and teach us on that because I'm not familiar with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and this is actually a bonus. This is something that's not covered in my book. It's something I read later in Roger Beckwith's book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church. So this is a bonus, you know, to the people that you're listening, that's listening to, um, podcast. But, um, what happens is that Jesus um, is purposeful when he says the son of Zechariah, uh, or Zechariah the son of Berechiah. Obviously, he's drawing from the the prophet uh, that wrote the prophetic book. But what he's doing is that he's conflating uh, the son of um, Berechiah by using that patronym. But he's also uh, drawing from another Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. That's in second Chronicles, because he describes the way he died. If you go to second Chronicles, chapter 24, I believe it actually says that Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, was killed between the temple and um, the courtyard. And Jesus is saying that uh, this Zechariah was killed before, between the temple and an altar, and it's the same. It's the same place. It's the same area that he, that he was killed. He was killed right outside of the holy, or the um, you know the holy place, and between the, the uh, altar of burnt offering. So what he's doing is that he's actually describing the, the patronym of one prophet, uh, the son of Berechiah, and the method of death uh, that he was killed. Um, which was uh, in the courtyard or between the temple and the altar, and he's conflating them purposely as if they were one person. And Jesus does this elsewhere in Mark chapter 2, verse 26, when he purposely conflates the high priest uh, Abiathar, and if you look in the Old Testament, it was actually the high priest um, Ahimelech. And so he's purposely conflating these two people, and you see this throughout rabbinic uh, literature as well. You you see this for instance, when uh, rabbinic literature where Shem is uh, uh, purposely conflated well, with Melchizedek—that's where this, you know, th- this correlation co- comes from. It's not saying that he is this person, but it's purposely conflating it. You also see this in the prelude to Psalm 34 when it says David pretended insanity uh, before. Um, Uh, King King Abimelech. But if you go back into the Old Testament books of Samuel, it was actually King Ashes. He's purposely conflating uh, two people as if they're the same person. And you see this, again, a lot in rabbinic literature. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's conflating the two as if they're the same person. So he's saying, um, he's drawing from the prophets that the Pharisees would have recognized by beginning with uh, the, the shed blood of the righteous Abel, you know at the very beginning of the foundation of the earth which is the first book of genesis and complete and finishing with the last canonical prophet um which would be um zechariah the son of jehoiada but he purposely conflates the names and this is something that his uh jewish audience particularly the uh the rabbis the pharisees in time would have understood he was doing matthew um who is was also uh, jewish would have understood this and this explains why luke doesn't include the patronym um the son of barakaya like matthew does because matthew's writing to a jewish audience luke isn't he's writing to a gentile audience and the gentile audience would not be familiar with this rabbinic name conflation so he simply says able to zechariah the only thing that they would have understood is the old testament scriptures that's all they would have been familiar with so they would have known he was talking about this um Zechariah from Second Chronicles because Jesus is uh, drawing on the canon as opposed to speaking chronologically.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely something we, I think, in the Western Christian mindset need to recognize at times. Mike, wouldn't you agree that uh, there are sometimes there's writings that the way that they would write write these things out in Hebrew, maybe a, a saying, a, how they're trying to bring it across, it doesn't convey so much in English. And so it's kind of, I don't want to say lost in translation, but we fail sometimes to look and see those things.
1: Yeah. You have other examples where Jesus will quote the beginning book of a scroll, but yet tell another story that's in that Um the one i can think of is jeremiah and he talks about uh zechariah he says jeremiah says and then quotes this story in zechariah and you know obviously as our readers that doesn't make sense but we don't use scrolls so we don't have that ideas and so yeah this is a um kind of getting behind the idea you have just in hermeneutics, understanding the text within the culture, how would they have understood it? And that's, you know, as Steve has said, it's a very common that we just miss. Where We don't understand. We don't have the context, um, which should make us study more. Kind of you have that, being able to dig deeper, use commentaries and ways to help us to bring out that information. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so... Important because when you read the New Testament, you have to understand the Old. the The authors are repeatedly going about it, which proves the point that they at least had some sort of body of documents that they're all working with. Especially when they don't quote outside of a quote in Jude, you know any what we would call apocryphal books.
2: Yeah, and another thing I want to emphasize, too, and this is something that I brought up in my book because I had, really hadn't seen a list like this, yet, but um, in one of my appendices, I bring up, um, I, I actually list, like, all these terms which are called metonyms. Metonyms are terms like it is written, the scriptures say, and what they do is that a Jesus or a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament uh, passage from an Old Testament book and he uses a certain term like it is written. There's about 300 of these in the New Testament. 100% of um, the books that they cite from are cited from books from the Hebrew Bible or what's called the Proto-Canon, the books that are in Protestant Old Testaments. Not once does it cite a book that is in Catholic or Orthodox Bibles, including books like Sirach or Wisdom or First or Second Maccabees, you know, these seven extra books, nor does it cite like some of the Greek editions to the book of Daniel that are in Protestant Old Testaments or the Greek editions to Esther. Um, it's only books that are found here. And one of the arguments that I've heard uh, by Catholic apologists is when you look into the early church and they only have these books that are found that that, that are found in Protestant Old Testaments. The argument is, well, they're simply citing what the Jews at that time believed. And and uh, for instance, there's a uh, early church father by the name of Athanasius of Alexander in the fourth century, and he has this three tiered list. The first tier are the books that are in the uh, Protestant Old Testament, the second tier are some of the books that are in the Deuterocanon, the fourth books, uh, tier are books that we would all consider to be apocryphal or or uninspired books. Um, But by doing that, um, they're kind of jumping from the frying pan into the fire because they're acknowledging that um, the Jews didn't accept these books because um, none of the so-called Deuterocanonical books are in these first-tier books that that the Jews would have accepted. And if you get to the second tier, not all the Deuterocanonical books are are even in there. For instance, um, I believe they um, omit uh, first and second Maccabees, at least in Athanasius' list. So so Athanasius would have actually considered these books to be uh, apocryphal. And he's writing in the fourth century, so this is rather late. Um, And furthermore, he says only the books that are in this first tier are books that are used to confirm doctrine. And the books that are in the second tier are edifying to be read. But he also includes other books like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas, which are books that aren't even in Catholic Old Testament books as Mm -hmm. well. And you had mentioned about the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint, like I said, there are different versions of it. And I talk about this in more detail in my book. There are different uh, versions of the Septuagint in the early age. And it's believed that because it the deuterocanonical books are found in later versions of the Septuagint in the church age, that this was the same version of the Septuagint that was in Jesus' day. But again, if you look through the new Testament, it never quotes any of these books as scripture. They quote a lot of books that aren't even in Catholic or Protestant Old Testaments. But if you take a look at them, they treat these, these deuterocanonical and apocryphal books no differently than they do in um, books that are are in, uh, say, uh, Ethiopian Bibles or, or Eastern Orthodox Bibles, they don't treat them as scripture because they don't use phrases like it is written or the scripture say or have you not read. So to believe that, that the later version of the Septuagint reflects what was in the Septuagint in Jesus's day is really being anachronistic. It's a it's a it's an assumption.
1: I think, too, and you kind of brought out about it is these books that are in question aren't written in Hebrew or Aramaic. They are all Greek written books. And I think that's important for the fact that even Jesus spoke Aramaic. Mm -hmm. He may have known Greek. We don't know, but he spoke in Aramaic and there's, and just the tension the Jews have with, The Gentile world, you kind of see in some of the study I've done just this kind of idea that they're not Jewish books. They may tell Jewish history, they may be apocryphal in the way that Revelation is apocryphal, but they're not scripture. And that is it. And you even consider, I don't know if you go this way in the book but looking at old testament <clears throat> scholarship in regard to textual criticism the masoretic text which is around 900 AD is very similar to the dead sea scrolls to um jerome's um old testament very close to the the septuagint and it they don't include them in those texts also, I think, and there it just kind of builds that case that the early church is they know about them, but as you kind of they're there, but they're not on the same level as, you know, Genesis and Exodus and all the rest.
2: Right. And um, it, as you alluded to, there were a lot of books that were written during this time period that we would refer to as the intertestamental period between 400 BC, roughly, and, and the time of the New Testament. Books like First Enoch and Jubilees and Third Ezra's, you know, which was actually accepted very early in the church. In fact, many early church fathers preferred this version because it was believed to have been translated into Greek before even Ezra and Nehemiah was. (coughs) The idea that the canon of the Jews is set much later is really fallacious because, as I mentioned about Roger Beckwith in his book, he brings up a Boreta, which is a written tradition that was later included in the Talmud. And, but it was it was a tradition that was written down in the second century, and it's called Baba Bathra B. In, in Baba Bathra A, it talks about the books of Moses, and in Baba Bathra B, it begins with Joshua and ends with Second Chronicles, and it is all the books of the Hebrew Bible, including Esther and some of these so-called uh, questionable books. And in it says that it begins by saying the Rabbans said. Uh, the word rabbons literally means the master said or the masters taught and this term is uh, goes all the way back to the first century and was first born by gamaliel the first and as we know from the book of acts gamaliel the first was a mentor of the apostle paul so he's not saying that um, this start started in the first century but we can date um, this back to at least the first century these collection of books as well as beginning uh, with Moses and and ending w- or with um, with Zechariah or with um, Second Chronicles. I'm sorry, you know, and actually goes before that. And we have to know, understand that Gamaliel was a mentor of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, who was also a Pharisee, and um, they were of the Pharisaic school of Hillel, because there's a couple different Pharisaic schools, Hillel and, and Shammai that I mentioned in my book. Well, Hillel, and this is something that's conceded by Catholic apologists like Gary Machuda and Trent Horn that they had the exact same books that are in protestant old testaments today you know and hillel goes back even into the bc area you know before um before uh, jesus was even born and we know that they're from the book of first maccabees that there was already a set canon because when um after the maccabean war when they were fighting against antiochus epiphanes you know who is uh torturing and persecuting the jews it says that he had gathered these books of of his ancestors and this was roughly around 164 bc so we can date the um, set canon at least 164 bc or possibly even earlier Um, so and there's a difference between a book being recognized as scripture you know in ancient judaism versus being canonical in other words they would have accepted these books to be just as inspired as the five books of moses but as far as putting them into like a canonical structure, this happened before the time of Christ and and after the time of like Ezra and Nehemiah, but they were always considered to be scripture by the ancient Jews. Um, One last point I want to make up because it's really significant. I had correspondence uh, with a gentleman by the name of John Martinoni. He's a host, he's a Catholic host of EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. And he had shared with me that the Septuagint from Jesus' day was completed around 134 BC, and this is really significant because virtually every book uh, that is in Catholic Old Testaments, which are not in Protestant Old Testaments, wasn't translated into the Greek Septuagint until after 134 BC. In fact, the only ones that were uh, written before 134 BC was the book of Baruch and possibly uh, the story of the three children, which is one of the editions of Daniel. And this is significant because when you look at the book of Daniel, it was written centuries earlier by the actual prophet. But the additions to Daniel, uh, the book of Susanna, the three children, and bell and the dragon, these are all additional separate writings that were written possibly by different people at different periods of time. Susanna, early first century, the ch- uh, three children around 164 B.C., which, by the way, is not mentioned in the New Testament, and Bella and Dragon around one hundred B.C. and I'm using Catholic dates in my book because I wanted to be objective and not use Protestant um, dates. So I use Catholic as well as Jewish dates. You know when I do my dating period of time. So most of these books weren't even in the Septuagint because it was completed at one thirty four B.C. Um, before these books were even read. And the question is, how did they get into the into the Old Testament of the Septuagint? Well, as Gary Machuda uh, correctly pointed out that the Septuagint began to be what's called a liturgical book and books started getting added after the first century. And so when you start seeing, uh, listen of Septuagint later on in the church era that includes these books, it's because they were added to the Septuagint after the first century. It was not included in the Septuagint in Jesus' time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's, Absolutely important, because these dates, if they're not lining up, how then could they be in what was held and commonly viewed as the Old Testament scriptures? Now, w- with the Apocrypha, um, <clears throat> well, actually, before we, we talk about the Apocrypha there, let's uh, w- why not the Book of Enoch? Because the Book of Enoch we see is quoted, right, from scripture. Um, again, maybe not in the sense of, you know, as you mentioned, what, what was the word you used, metonyms? Metonyms, yes. Metonyms. So, um, let's talk about that because I, I, I've had individuals tell me, you know, the the Bible, the Old Testament, doesn't have all the books in it. You know, some are referring to, you know, the uh, the apocryphal books, the Deuterocanon. De- what do you call it? The Deuter- Deuter-, Deuter Deuter non I don't even know how to say it. Say it ten
2: times fast, let alone once, right? Yeah, the
0: Deuterocanon. yeah, yeah. Deuterocanon books. But what about like things like the Book of Enoch?
2: Right. And I actually address this in my book because I actually bring it up in my chapter on the New Testament, which even though the book is about the Old Testament, but it was written during this period of time uh, known as uh, the intertestament period when prophecy had ceased. So one of the qualifications of an Old Testament book, uh, and this is something that even Catholics and Protestants agree on, is that it had to be written by a known prophet like Moses or a contemporary um, like Ezra and Nehemiah during a time that that prophecy was still active, and this causes a real problem with with um, the books that are in Catholic Bibles because books like First Enoch and Third Ezra was written during the same period of time as these Deuterocanonical books. So the question I would always ask him is, well, if you don't believe prophecy ceased, then why do you accept, say for instance, Wisdom, but you don't accept First Enoch because they were written during the time period that you think prophecy continued? But again, if we go to the a book of first uh, Maccabees in Catholic Bibles um, it indirectly and I would actually argue even directly um, affirms that prophecy had ceased because one of the things that it says is that um, when the temple was desecrated and, and destroyed they had uh, taken the stones and put the stone up, up on a mountain and they said they were waiting until a prophet would come around to tell them what to do with these stones well Um, And that indicates that there was no prophet, you know, around during that time, because if there was, a prophet would have told them what to do with the stones. Um, And the other thing is you have to understand when this was written and when the events took place, because the events took place roughly around 164, uh, 150 B.C., and it was written down roughly around uh, 100 to 110 B.C. So you're talking roughly 40, 50 years from the time of the events to the time it was written. Well, you would think that after about a half of a century, that a prophet would have come around to tell him what to do, and the writer of First Maccabees would have talked about this prophet. But there's no mention of any prophet that's active, let alone around during this period of time. Just to put it in perspective, if I were to say that my grandfather was waiting for a prophet in 1970 to tell him what to do with his gold Buick uh, when he parked it in the uh dr- driveway and I'm writing today um it's even if there wasn't a prophet around during that time if there was a prophet you know later on or in a different area I would have mentioned sometime in that 50-year period that this prophet would have told him to say um, what to do with his car but likewise there's no prophet that the writer of Maccabees talks about what to do with these stones and, and it's not because the prophet wasn't around the area at that time it's because the, uh, there wasn't any prophet around. During this time, because prophecy had ceased right. centuries before that,
0: yeah, yeah, that's very important. That was something I was thinking about today because I was actually listening to uh, re listening to when you came to Brunswick, mm-hmm. uh, and you mentioned the fact that um, you have this, and I started to think about it in my head. I'm like, yeah, you know, because Moses wrote the first five books, mm-hmm. Moses is this prophet from of God. He's, he's showing these miracles, he's he's showing these signs that he is this prophet from God, and we're seeing that throughout. We even see it in the New Testament canon. I mean, I know we're talking about Old Testament, but we even see it in the New Testament canon where th- these signs were given to authenticate these uh, apostles as they were writing, uh, and these New, uh, New Testament writers writing the very words of God, the very scriptures that we have. But during that intertestamental uh, inter, uh, period, there was no prophet. There, there was no one that spoke from God for 400 years, right? And so that would be a problem to have these books. Now, these apocryphal books, these these books that were uh, written during that time, as you mentioned, the Maccabees books, the the first, second Maccabees, and some of these other books, they can be helpful for us. Why don't you speak to that? That we can learn things from them while they are yet not. Uh, inspired Scripture.
2: Right, and this is something I also address in my book, because Protestants, and I'll make this clear to anybody who's watching, whether they're Catholic, Orthodox, or, or Protestant, whatever, we don't consider these books to be garbage and not useful. I mean, the, the view of the Jews and the early Church and even the Reformers, they consider these books to be edifying. They can consider them you know, to be useful because they do reveal things about this intertestamental period that you don't find anywhere else. For example, we learn about Hanukkah from 1st and 2nd Maccabees. We also learn about the uh, rise and fall of Alexander the Great. And, and there's a lot of other very useful things, including the Maccabean War, that took place um, when um, uh, Judas Maccabeus, uh, known as the Hammer, um, he, uh, he conquered um, the, the tyranny of, of Antiochus Epiphanes. So there is useful historical information, but just because there are things that are true in these books, it does not follow that these are inspired scripture, because we can find the um, writings during the same period of time that are also true in historical, but they're not inspired scripture. One of the things that I bring up is that there's certain godly criteria that the these Old Testament books have that the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon don't have. Like you said, they were written for, during a specific ter- period of time where um, people performed miracles. Prophets did in order to validate in what they said was true and came from God and not just from them. Um, there are no uh, historical or theological errors that would contradict previous or later scripture. And it was during a specific time period between the time of Moses and and, and the, during the time of Zechariah or the very end of the um, Old Testament canon. And What's interesting, Catholics and Orthodox would actually agree with us about, about these criteria for the New Testament because they'll say, well, how do you know that after the time of the Apostle John that books, you know, like the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of um, Barnabas and others and the Didache, how do you know that they um, don't belong in the New Testament? They'll say, well, because, you know, There there were no apostles around after the time of John. He was the last one. But when it comes to the books of the Old Testament, then suddenly they change their tune and they have different criteria because Mm -hmm. they don't realize that prophecy had ceased, you know, around the time of Nehemiah, around 400 B.C. And they have certain errors, you know, um, that um, that cannot be reconciled. There's a difference between a bible difficulty or an apparent error that might be difficult but if you do enough studying and and prayer you can you can reconcile even these hard passages that appear to conflict but they don't but books like tobit which says that the medicinal use of fish guts is to scare away demons and to cure blindness by gutting a fish smearing it on the eyes blowing on the eyes not not just the smearing but you know the blowing is the important important part two blowing on the eyes it cures blindness and it'll it'll never come back and I'm a nurse I've been in the medical field for or healthcare field for 25 years and I've um, read a lot of medical journals and there is no evidence that blowing on the eyes after smearing fish guts cures blindness in fact it's not being done today and I always say that if it was a angel from heaven um that is telling Tobit this why would he give him medical information that we're not still doing today and why would he say that a medicinal use is to scare away demons when that's that's a spiritual quote-unquote remedy not a medicinal one and there's tons of um errors that i mentioned in one of my appendices in my books that's just one of them that it's not a bible difficulty or an apparent error but a real error that cannot be reconciled
1: yeah so some of our listeners may be listen, thinking, and kind of what I'm thinking, is why do Catholics and Orthodox kind of hold tight on this point? Why is this a big deal? Because ultimately the question is, does Protestants have the full canon or not? And if we don't have the full canon, there's issues. We mm-hmm. don't have the full counsel of God as we claim we do. So why is this – why are kind of the Catholics kind of set on, no, these books are inspired and should be part of the canon?
2: Right. That's a very good question. And at the Council of Trent, it was the first time that the the council had voted – not unanimously, by the way, but had a majority vote – that anybody who rejects these books in their entirety and their whole – uh, an anathema or an excommunication, or, or to be a curse, is placed on um, that individual. It's something that's binding, you know, to 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 the Catholic, you know. And in some translations of Catholic Bibles, it even says damned, you know, that you can actually lose your salvation if you reject that. And yeah, but yet, when you look throughout church history, there are tons of people, doctors of the church, pro, uh, popes, cardinals, uh, the Glossa Ordinaria, which was kind of uh, a a, a Bible commentary, you know, of Catholics in the latter Middle Ages that rejected these books and even called them apocrypha, you know. But they're next excommunicated because they were born too early prior to the Council of Trent. And another thing is, when you read uh, Galatians chapter one, the Apostle Paul says that if anybody gives to you a different gospel, which isn't even a gospel of all, even if it's an apostle or an angel for heaven, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And so, he, so basically, what Rome is doing is is a, is a, is correlating uh, the canon of scripture with the gospel. You know, they're actually, in a sense, teaching a, a different gospel, because they're saying if, if you don't um, believe in these complete books entirety with all their parts, you're excommunicated, so they're making it a salvation issue. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what was the canon that Jesus and the, uh, and the early church believed, meaning the early church in the first century? And there is absolutely no evidence in the, in the first century that from the new testament that jesus or any of the disciples considered these books to be inspired scripture like you said they were useful they were edifying um but the fact that trent has felt the need to attach an anathema to it is troubling because they're, they're making it a salvation issue and the apostle paul even equated believing in a false gospel with believing in a false jesus so The the Jesus that saves us from the pits of hell when we believe and repent in the gospel um, is not the the Jesus of Roman Catholicism. And I know that's harsh language, but it's a matter of authority. What canon did Jesus actually profess? And we can read from the gospels themselves that he he drew on a set canon, um, which had the same parameters that are in Jewish and Protestant Old Testaments today.
0: Well, I think it's very interesting, too, is that the Council of Trent came on the heels of the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. And so now we're aware, because we talked about the intertestamental period, that these apocryphal books were there. Uh, I think Jerome is, what, 4th century, 380 or Mm -hmm. somewhere around there. And so Jerome is the one who gives us this Latin Vulgate Yep, which for the majority of the church is used, um, correct? It's, it's it's this used. So, kind of, how did we get from Jerome? What was his position on these uh, books that was used by Rome? I mean, Rome would speak and use the the Latin Vulgate uh, up into this time here. Of um, I know the Bishop Bible comes along, but they up into this time frame. Um, kind of, how did we get from there? To this position, where they're now saying these are inspired, you know what I mean. Like, what kind of kind of we mentioned the, the Reformation is kind of pushing that, right? As a counter, but let's let's talk about that a little bit. Like with Jerome and this Latin Vulgate, where was his position?
2: Right. Well, what a lot of people don't realize, they know that Jerome compiled the Latin Vulgate roughly around 405 AD. He began it around 382 uh, under the authority of the Bishop of Rome at the time, who was Damasus I. But the same Bishop of Rome was the same Bishop that convened something called the Synod or the Council of Rome in the same year that he commissioned Jerome. And we have to understand that these 4th these century councils of Rome and then later, uh, Carthage and Hippo that are in the same century at the end of the fourth century. These were local councils. They were all under um, the commission of the bishop of Rome, but they were still local councils. So they set, they weren't ecumenical or universal councils that were binding to the entire church because the church also included churches that were in the east. And and if we look back then, the the churches in the east did not embrace this. The, the you know these. Extra books that are in the Bible, and if anything, it actually affirms the lack of an authority of a bishop of Rome, which um, oversaw the entire church. Because if they did, if it, if there was one, all the bishop of Rome would had to say is, "I you know I'm speaking with the authority of the leader of the church. These are the books of the Bible, and these are the books of the Bible that every Christian is bound to believe and accept in, in their Bible." And this didn't happen until hundred years later at the council of Trent that, you know, that this was officially declared. But if you look at these fourth century councils and you look at somebody like Jerome, we have to understand people like Jerome and some other uh, uh, doctors in the church in particular, even in the East, the ones that had the familiarity of what the Jews accepted, the Jews of antiquity, you know, hundreds of years earlier accepted, they tended to have the identical, um, And embrace the identical books that are in protestant old testaments today and reject these apocryphal books and a lot of people will jump to augustine but augustine he wasn't the scholar that jerome was i mean he obviously knew latin he was he knew greek pretty well he didn't know anything about hebrew you know so he was just basing his understanding from the church of his time and he may even be drawn on a version of the septuagint that was around during his time so we're talking fourth century talking you know, um, 400 years or so after the completion of the Septuagint, you know, to begin with, prior to even the time of Christ. And even people like Augustine made a distinction between books that were canonical, meaning part of the Old Testament canon, and books where that were simply edifying. And when you even listen to Jerome you know, on his in, uh, Christian doctrine, um, the books that were in the Hebrew Bible he considered canonical, and the books that are in the um that are considered deuterocanonical books, those so seven extra books he considered to be edifying, you know, and to be read in the church. You know, so even even doctors of the church like Augustine, who accepted these books, even he realized they were not at the same level. And if you look, and just quickly, if you look at the um, fourth church, uh, fourth century church councils, they didn't even agree with each other on the identical books, let, let alone the later canon that was defined at Trent, because unlike the, councils of Hippo and Carthage, if you look at the Synod of Rome, it enumerates every single book and separates books like separating Lamentations from Jeremiah, even though they are one book, but there's no mention of Baruch. And that's because, and I mentioned this in my book, the book of Baruch wasn't added to the the Vulgate until about 400 years later. It was not in his original. Vulgate is considered part of the Old Testament scriptures. That's why we find early. Um, versions of the Vulgate, you know, such as uh, Codex Amyotitis, and there's another one in the 7th century that doesn't include it, and that's because it wasn't in there. It's a, People say, well, it's assumed that Bruke was part of the book of Jeremiah, but again, that's being anachronistic, and if it was originally part of the book of Jeremiah, why does the Synod of Rome separate Lamentations from Jeremiah, but it doesn't do the same thing with the book of, Baruch, and, and there's a lot of other arguments, you know, that I go into my uh, book as well to, to back all this up.
0: Yeah, and this is why it's vitally important for you to get the book Why Protestants Believe, because we are just kind of scratching some surfaces here. And there, I and mean, this yeah. is one of them shows I'm going to have to go back and listen again for my own edification. And I know maybe some of our listeners, uh, whether they're listening live now or will listen to the audio podcast of this when it drops, uh, it's there's a lot of information here, and so we want to encourage you to get the book Why Protestants uh, Why Protestant Bibles Are Smaller, so you can really dig in and, and understand this. Because again, there, this is a lot of information, and I know we may think, wh- "Why is that important?" Um, well, we do a lot of evangelism, you know, out on the streets and in 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 our everyday life, <coughs> and we run into a lot of Catholic individuals. And there are good, solid Catholic individuals who, I believe there are some Catholics who are genuine believers, and I, I pray they will at some point come out of that uh, teaching. Um, but we engage with these, brother, these these individuals. I'm not brothers in the faith and, uh, based upon their teachings. But we engage with them because we want to see them come out of this. And these are kind of some of the argumentations that come up. I know I was out at the abortion mill one day and I was preaching uh, the gospel and we were trying to have babies rescue babies. And there was a Catholic priest out there and we got into a conversation. He said, Well, you wouldn't have that Bible if it wasn't for the Roman Catholic Church. These kind of things come up and it's not just like something that was debated in the 16th century. These are things that still are talked about today. Yeah. And And I want to.
2: Yeah, just to piggyback on what you said, I'm glad that you brought that up. One of the arguments they'll say is that well, the Catholic Church gave us our Bible; they're the ones that wrote it. Well, not only is that not true for the majority of the, the Bible, because the two-thirds of its Old Testament it was written by the Church, not the or written by the Jews, not the Church, because the Church wasn't even built until Pentecost. But um, if you actually look at the the Synod or the Council of Rome in the fourth century, immediately after they list all their their books that are in the Old Testament, it specifically states that the scriptures gave us the church. The church did not give us the scriptures. The idea of the church giving us the scriptures is a much later Catholic apologetic um, argument. But if you look back to the Council of Rome, the exact opposite is said. You know, and when, you know, Catholics will say, well, uh, the we go by the authority of the church to tell us what the scriptures are, because the scriptures tell us that the church is a pillar and shield of the truth. That's circular reasoning, because what you're doing is using the scriptures to give authority to the church, but then you're giving the church to define what the scriptures are. You're using A to prove B and then B to prove A. And one, one last thing I, and I wrote this down actually earlier today, and it just kind of made me think um, one thing about um um catholics is that they have and even orthodox they have a very um loving affection towards mary uh, actually to uh an extra biblical like devotion to to mary and i was starting to think myself for as much as mary is focused on in the catholic church i mean just look at a rosary there's 10 times as many hail marys as there are our fathers or the lord's prayer in in a, in a rosary well if the catholic church would have written the new testament they certainly would have mentioned Mary by name more than 20 times. And 19 out of those 20 times are in the Gospels, and most of those are only in in four chapters in two Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, when they're they're, they're talking about the birth of Jesus and afterwards. And aside from Acts chapter 1 at Pentecost, which is 40 days after his ascension, Mary is never mentioned by name once in any of the... um, New Testament Gospels, including five of John's writings, uh, even though she went to live with them for the rest of her days, according to the Gospel of John. So if if later Catholics if it reflect, you know, the early church, you would expect to hear Mary mentioned by name more than 20 times in 27 books of uh, the New Testament.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very uh, a valid point there. Uh, for our Catholic friends to consider and think about there. Um, Steve, we want to thank you for coming on the program. An hour goes by so quickly. We know that here on the program we see it go so fast. Again, this was a very fascinating uh, and, and uh, show for us to learn from and to try to glean some understanding here. I do want to encourage people, again, to go get the book. Um, so, Steve, why don't you go ahead and tell people where they can find you, maybe if they have questions uh, if they want to reach out and talk to you about this a little bit more, where they can find you uh, and any closing remarks you would want to leave that maybe we didn't touch on, uh, please feel free to do so.
2: Right. Well, first of all, I want to thank both you and Mike for having me on the show. The honor and the pleasure has been all mine. And a- after an hour, like you says, we have barely even touched and scratched the surface of this topic. And this is so important because it's a matter of what, Old Testament canon, which tells us about Christ and prophecies about Christ, what canon was it that Jesus actually affirmed? Where is the evidence in Scripture as well as in the infant church? You know, meaning that you know first couple of centuries, not what was believed locally you know, later on in, in church history. So, if you want to get a hold of me. Um, you can contact me either on Facebook, Twitter, or on YouTube. It's all the same name, which is up on the screen, Born Again RN. I am a registered nurse at a local hospital. Um, and you can message me privately, um, and we can you know, talk more about it that way. You can email me as, as, as well at the same handle, uh, BornAgainRN at yahoo.com. Um, as far as my book, you can find it on Amazon, um, why Protestant Bibles are smaller A defense of the Protestant Old Testament canon. Um, it has over 630 references, about 60% of them are from Catholic resources, not Protestant, so I try to be objective, and another 40 are from, from Jewish, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, and other non-Protestant sources. And like I says, I actually have a list of the metonyms or the terms to introduce Um, Old Testament scriptures, um, like it is written, scriptures say, and all of them, all 300 come from books from the Hebrew Bible. None of them come from books from the um, Deuterocanon, including books that are alluded to in the New Testament, even more so than a lot of the books in the Hebrew Bible, but none of them are cited as specifically as scripture.
0: Yeah. Again, that's uh, want to encourage you. Get that book, Why Protestant Bibles Are Smaller. Go to Amazon. Check it out. If you have any questions, you can contact uh, Steve at the uh, uh, info that he's he just put out there for you to contact him. Uh, and if, if you can't find him, just uh, reach out to us. Sorry, I'm getting tired. Reach out to us, and uh, we'll, we'll connect you uh, with Steve. That's been G220 Radio for tonight. Uh, next week, we will be back on the 1689, finishing up Chapter 26 with our part three dealing with the church. Uh, So you're going to want to tune in uh, next week for that. Uh, We've got a lot of other programs planned uh, for the next couple months. I think all the way up until the end of November, we are planned and booked. So uh, stay tuned to G220 Radio. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube, uh, our YouTube channel, and uh, uh, listen to the podcast. If you don't want to watch us and see our faces here, you can listen to the podcast uh, over at Podbean. That's G220 Radio. Until next time, God bless and good night.